We all say that we love different things, don't we? And when we say the word love, we mean it in different ways. Like I'll say I love the Milwaukee Bucks or I love riding Harley Davidson, uh, really want that to happen really, really, really soon. Um, I love kayaking, I love my kids, I love my wife, I love pizza, I love lifting weights, just not leg day. Like we say this word love and we use it many, many different ways and we use it with varying levels of intensity because we throw this word out but we don't really know what it means. And here's the thought that I want to start off with today. We do the same thing to God and to other people. When we say that we're supposed to love God, we could have a different idea of what that really looks like and then loving other people as well. So I think that needs a reset. And as we've been going through this series, we're going to reset this according to the way that the Word of God tells us that we should love God and how do we grow in that and then how do we love people in light of that as well. So we're going to go to 1 John chapter 3. If you have your Bible, go over to 1 John and that's going to be our text that we stay anchored in today. We're going to go through part of chapter 3, most of chapter 4, and a little of chapter 5. Well, Pastor Derek, we've already gone through 1 John in this series. I know, you can read it again. It's okay. All right, 1 John chapter 3. Let's see what John shares to this group of Christians who are suffering persecution, who desperately need to be reminded of where their hope should truly lie. 1 John chapter 3, let's read the first 10 verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Stop right there. He is about to explain to us what the love of God looks like, and he's going to go down a different path than we would probably anticipate that he would, but we'll circle back around and explain that, okay? The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So here John is saying, we don't know everything about God, but what we do know, we can see in the scriptures and we can understand things about God and that should have, help us have a healthy view of God. But we don't get it all yet. Like we're not fully gonna develop in this. But it doesn't mean we still shouldn't grow in holiness. It still doesn't mean we shouldn't grow in Christ's likeness and godliness. We should still pursue growing these things because he's pure. So therefore, we should be submitting ourselves to this process of growing in Christ's likeness by purifying ourselves because he's pure. Even though we're not gonna get all the way there. And here John says, we're not going to get all the way there till we see him face to face. And we're going to know a whole lot more than we know now. And we're going to be made perfect, not here on the earth, but it doesn't excuse us from a lack of growing. So that's part of this purification and growing in what? What's the context? Remember, this is the love of God. This is how we grow. This is how we need to continue to grow to please and honor God. Verse four, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, he's not saying here or suggesting that the person who is a Christian is never going to make a mistake or never do anything wrong ever again after they become a Christian. That's not what John is saying. So let me just take that 
burden of guilt off of you if you're like, oh man, well, am I even a Christian because I did something wrong just this morning? Don't think that. That's not what he's suggesting. What he's saying is, is that when you come into Christ and you're made new, that the things you were previously okay with, the things you previously thought were normal, the previous things you didn't have to make excuses for uh, because it was just accepted by society in general, you're not okay with those things anymore. Something has shifted, something has changed, and you are growing in understanding how to please and honor God with your every breath. He's saying here that these things, this lifestyle, this pattern, this habit of sin is not okay. So this is the differentiator. Listen to me. This is the differentiator when it comes to holiness and growing in Christ's likeness as we are growing in knowing God more. It's the difference between the person who honors God with their lips, who says, oh, I know God. I know God. I love God. But their lifestyle shows something different because the pattern hasn't changed you see, you can't honor God with your lips and your actions not be changed. You can't honor God with your lips and your heart be far from him. Then you're in the same boat that the movie actor or the celebrity recording artist who's receiving the award at the Grammys or who's receiving an Oscar. They get up and what do they all say? I want to thank God. I want to thank my mom. I want to thank my producer. I want to thank the director, whatever. They always want to throw God in there and they have this big blanketed statement, and people are like, oh, they love God. But they were just in this movie that just was driven with all the sexual immorality and all of this filthy language and all this lucre, and they writing these songs that are pointing people to living a very godless lifestyle. But the first person they want to thank is God, and God's like, nope, not me. <laughs> you got the wrong guy. You're thanking the wrong guy. You see, it's one thing to say, I know God. But it's another thing to actually know and love God. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There should be a difference. Amen, church? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. He's not okay with this pattern. He's not okay with this. He's not just going to constantly justify. He's instead going to look to honor God with his life. Verse 10, by this it's evident who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, and then check this out, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Very interesting that he adds that on there, and then he begins to go into this dissertation of what it means to love one another. And we're going to pick that back up here in just a minute in chapter four. But listen to me, church. The person who knows and loves God grows in knowing and loving Jesus. The difference maker between the celebrity that thanks God for their award and the person who actually knows God. The difference is Jesus. That's the difference. The difference between the person who says, 
oh, all roads lead to heaven. Just be a good, moral, ethical person that's living their life in a way that, you know, you're, you're doing good things for others and you're trying not to, you know, say bad words at work or around people who, you know, when they cut you off in traffic or, you know, when things don't go your way or a person who prays or a person who is religious. As long as you are trying to be a good person, be nice to your neighbor and worship in some way, you're okay. And people make these blanketed statements like that to make themselves feel okay. But there's something different about Christianity that all that's not okay. Christianity is not this universalist approach to loving God because there's something deep within humanity that recognizes there's a problem. And the reason we know that there's something deep within humanity that recognizes there's a problem is because every person, regardless of who you are, is trying to fix some problem. Everyone's trying to either solve world hunger, solve diseases, solve homelessness, solve some sort of abuse. They're all trying to fix this broken world, and they're trying to do so all in their own strength, and maybe God will just help us or bless us. You see, it's not necessarily our job to fix this world, and when we get the idea that we can fix our lives and we can fix what we have done or what we have created, then we're trusting in ourselves as the answer. What we need is a better program. What we need is the government to get behind us. What we need is some more support to correct this wrong and to fix this problem or to you know break this pattern or whatever the case may be. And there's always going to be war. There's always going to be famine. There's always going to be poverty. There's always going to be destruction all around us. And we should be people who are compassionate, who are loving our neighbor as ourselves, who are trying to help. But yet we can't fix this world in our own strength. The difference between every other religion and Christianity is this. Jesus Christ. The scripture says this about Jesus. It says he's a stumbling block of offense. People don't get offended when you stand up and receive your award as a celebrity and say, thank you, God. They get offended when you begin to talk about Jesus, especially if you're a person who actually knows him. That's when people start getting offended because you see, when you start introducing Jesus, and when you start talking about Jesus, you're talking about something much different. You're talking about someone much different. You're talking about someone who has called us to be set apart. Someone who has called us out to walk in the light and to live in a way that pleases and honors Him to where He has created and shown us this pattern to show us the way to the Father. Because Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. This is what separates the Christian from the Muslim. It's Jesus. You see, the Muslim would want to say, oh, but look, I believe in Abraham. I believe in God. Look, I believe in creation according to the Genesis account. I believe this. And they try to pair up their similarities just like the Mormon would do, just like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, just like the, the Jehovah's Witness, just like all of these other groups. And, and even all throughout the world would want to try to pair up and say, we're all worshiping the same God. No, we're not. No, we're not. The differentiator is Jesus. Jesus is the stumbling block of offense. Jesus is the one who causes everybody to go, whoa, 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 I was okay with just saying I love God, but you can't love God without loving Jesus. You can't. You can't because there's no other way. There's no other way to the Father 
You see, Jesus calls himself the gate for the sheep. He's, he's the gate. He's the way. And he also says that the road and the pathway, it, it, it's straight and, there's, and it's narrow and, and few people actually find it, but it leads to life. The road to destruction that leads to death, it's wide. And men, people stumble into that all the time and it's easy to find and it, and it makes sense to our, our carnality and our flesh and, and it makes sense to a, a, a person who, who is living for themselves but the person who really wants to know God, they gotta go through the gate. They've gotta love Jesus because Jesus is the one who has given us access to the Father. Because you and I could not have access to God on our own. For us to be able to grow in loving Jesus more, we've got to do a few things. And we never stop doing these things. And I want you to write these down if you've got something to write with or type with or whatever the case may be. The first thing we've got to do to grow in loving Jesus more is we've got to see our greatest need. We have to be reminded of our greatest need. If we don't see our greatest need then we're going to miss everything else. It's all just going to be words. It's all just going to be pragmatism. It's all just going to be us feeling good about ourselves because we did the thing and checked the box. And we go, I, I, I showed up at the thing. I said the words. I, I went through the motions. I did everything the person told me to do that I trusted was showing me the truth. And, and so therefore I'm good. And they never grow in loving God more. They never find delight in serving Jesus and anything they do for God, it seems to be more burdensome or it seems to be more restrictive and they never find joy in the journey. And it's not because they're not trying to do something good. It's because they may have missed knowing God because they missed their need. If we don't see our need, the rest of this isn't going to make sense. So we've got to start with seeing our greatest need. What is our greatest need? According to the scripture, our greatest need is that because of our sin, we are disconnected and cut off from knowing the creator of the universe. And so really what hell truly is, it is an eternity removed from the presence of God. It is not being with him, our creator. And life and life eternal is being with our creator forever. And our greatest need is that we need to be with God because otherwise we're destined for death, eternal separation. That's our greatest need. Now, here in America, we don't understand need. We don't really get that. A person in a third world country understands different needs than a person in a first world country needs. We go, wow, it's, uh, I need a new car. I need a new house. A person in a third world country would say, I, I need water to hope I just make it through to the next day. So need is very different. Need is relative based on what circumstance you find yourself in in the world and so my greatest need is, is not water, it's not a car. My greatest need is to be reconnected to my creator so that I can have life. Because as I read the first three chapters of Genesis, I see the fellowship that God had with man before sin entered into the world. And I have that need on the inside of me. And I'm always trying to fix it. I'm always trying to make myself feel good. I'm always trying to do something right in my own eyes. Even those who don't know Jesus are still trying to do good and still trying to fix things because they all realize there's a problem. But I can't fix it on my own, no matter how good I try to get. But here's the beauty of the gospel. You can't, you don't have to, Jesus did. Jesus inserted himself into human history at just the right time to die 
for you and for me and to take the punishment that you and I deserve, that we actually earned. And instead of us getting that punishment, instead of us having to endure the wrath of God, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for you and for me so that we could, by his sacrifice, become made right or righteous in the eyes of God. So when God looks at us, he doesn't look at us as an enemy any longer if we placed our faith and trust in what Christ has done. He looks at us as a son or a daughter. The scripture calls us saints or priests or, or kings. What, that doesn't even make sense. How, how, how could I be considered someone who could be holy in the eyes of God? How could I be someone who would be righteous in the eyes of God? I haven't done anything exactly Jesus did. That is the beauty of the gospel, and that's the difference, is that every other religion would say, you have to earn it to try to make life better. You want to make sure you're getting enough karma points to where maybe in the next life you'll, you know, come back as something better, instead of having to suffer because of the wrong you did. Instead of me trying to tip the scales of justice in my favor, I say, Jesus, you are the one who absorbed the wrath of God for my sake because God is just and God is holy. So because God is just and holy, he couldn't let sin go unpunished. It had to be punished because if God just turned a blind eye to it, he wouldn't be very just. So sin had to be punished, but instead of me, the one who deserved it, the one who earned it, getting it, Jesus inserted himself into history and said, I'll take it. Why? Because God so loved the world, amen, that he gave his only begotten son. And what's my responsibility is to believe in him. And to know that what he did was sufficient. So the first thing I have to do is I have to see my need. I have to see my greatest need. I have to be reminded of my greatest need. The second thing I have to do is I have to see Jesus as sufficient to meet my greatest need. I have to believe in the sufficiency of Christ. I have to believe that what Christ did was enough. And, and the next thing I have to actually believe, I have to confess, I have to, I have to trust that what he did was sufficient and he fulfilled my greatest need. And then here's the last thing that I have to do. And you never, ever stop doing this. But this is the thing that I think Christians stop doing, unfortunately. We have to remind ourselves of our greatest need once again and repent. Because I can drift. You can drift into thinking I understand the gospel. I understand my greatest need. I understand Jesus met, met and fulfilled my greatest need. And so therefore, I get it. And now I want to just move on to something else. But when I am a person who can drift into thinking there's something else, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, I got Jesus, but now I want something else. No, there is nothing greater. It's like the story of Christ redeeming the world and dying for a sinner like you and me. It is the greatest story that has ever been told or will ever be told. And if we truly believe that, then why would we think that there's something else outside of that that I need? He is the one who fulfilled my greatest need. Amen, church? That's why Romans chapter 5 and verse 7 through 8, the apostle Paul, he writes this, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Maybe like every now and then, it's pretty rare someone would die for like what we'd call a good guy. Though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. Maybe someone would say, I'll die in their place because they need to go on and live because they're a good person. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we were a good person. Not because we were good people, 
God shows his love. Remember John saying, this is the love of God. Here again, Paul writing in Romans, this is the love of God. And this is the gospel. This is the good news of Scripture that while we were still sinners, not when we became worthy to die for because of something we had done, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John chapter 3, in verse 4 and 5, he said, everyone who practices sinning is practicing lawlessness because sin is lawlessness. He said, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there's no sin. And I find it interesting that John wants to write about sin in the middle of talking about God's love. I thought we were going to talk about what God's love was all about. Now you're talking about this sin issue. And it it at first may hit us a little strange until we look at what sin truly is and why he's contrasting sin and he's comparing sin in contrast to the love of God. Because what is sin? Here's what sin is. For the Christian, sin is simply misplaced affections and a belief that I need something greater than Jesus. That's what sin is. Sin is Doubting in the sufficiency of Christ and trusting in something outside of Christ to give me something that I think I need other than Christ because I feel like I'm missing something. And when I doubt the sufficiency of Christ, that's, that's sin. When I look to something else, when I look to pornography to satisfy me instead of trusting in Christ, I'm saying Christ is somehow insufficient. When I look to drugs or I look to alcohol as something to fill a void in my life that I haven't surrendered to Christ and I have, I'm doubting in the sufficiency of Christ and I'm saying this is going to give me something that Christ hasn't or can't give me. When I trust in food, when I trust in shopping, when I trust in gossip, when I trust in manipulation, when I trust in the new job or when I trust in the new raise or the new position in the company and I'm saying I have to have this in order to find significance and identity, I'm saying that there's something lacking in Christ. And it's not that some of those things couldn't turn out to be good things in certain circumstances. It's that I've made idols out of things and there are some things that are just inherently sinful regardless of whether I make an idol of them or not. But in the, same, in the same vein, it's showing us that we're trusting in something outside of Christ. Food is good, and abusive food is not good, because I'm saying I need this to fill something in my life. Me saying having a job is good and pursuing advancement in the company, but not at the sake of wrapping my identity up in it, and because I'm saying there's something missing in Christ, so here's, here's another way to put it. Is, if selfishness is daily dominating your decisions and how you treat other people, it's because you haven't loved God more than you love yourself. If addiction is dominating your life, then your affections are set more on that thing or that substance or that screen than it is on Christ. You're loving your sin more than you're loving God. And so I have to learn how then can I have my affection stirred to love God more because I don't want to be a person who says I honor God with my lips, but then my life doesn't match up. If I do that, I'm being a hypocrite. If I do that, I'm not denying myself. If I do that, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting in something else 
to give me something that I say I need and I'm missing out on being reminded of my greatest need and Jesus being sufficient to fulfill my greatest need. Does that make sense, church? You see, Jesus put it like this in Luke chapter 14 and verses 26 and 27. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is a difficult text to read. And Jesus isn't just saying, hey, go, go hate everybody. But what he is saying is that you can't love them more than me. And if you love them more than me, then you have misplaced affections. It's wonderful to love your family. He's not saying don't love your family. He's saying just don't love your family more than me. Because if you love your family more than you love God, then you've got a limit on your, how, you'll, how you'll serve and worship and honor him. And, and you'll go, whoa, God, I'll follow you. Just, you know, I, I just don't want to go there. And God, I'll, I'll do what's, what, what makes sense until it doesn't make sense anymore. Kind of like when God called Abram. God came to Abram and he said, hey, leave all your family and go over here to this land that I'm going to show you. You don't know where you're going. Don't take anybody familiar with you, but I just want you to go. Well, where are we going? Okay, just, just you know, somewhere. And Abraham says, okay, God, here we go. Yeah, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, that's not easy. Yeah, that's not what we would want all the time. But the person who loves their family more than God would say, well, I... I you know, God, I mean, I, you can make it work, you know, in this land. I mean, you, you don't really need me to do that. You don't really need me to do that. I mean, it, yeah. and we make all these excuses, and we identify the limit to how far we're, we're willing to trust God. But Jesus said, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. One of the other gospels says, it's not worthy of me. Oh, that's a hard truth. But if I'm dying to myself, daily. It's, it's not just a one-time thing. Died to myself. No, it's a, it's a daily thing. And sometimes it's actually even in the moment. But dying to yourself daily, here's what it does. It resets my focus towards loving God. It helps me hit the reset button. And now I'm able to go, okay, I can focus on loving God because here's the thing we need to realize and I want us to get today. I can't disciple effectively without loving God. I can't do it. Otherwise, I'm just going through the rhythm and the motion of pragmatism, and there's no heart in it. There's no true devotion in it. And Jesus said to go into all the world and make disciples. So we're supposed to make disciples, and I can go, okay, I'm making a disciple because I'm teaching a class, or I'm willing to do a community group, or whatever the case may be. But if I'm not loving God, I will never be an effective disciple maker. I've got to love God. I can't share the gospel and evangelize without loving God. And I probably won't share the gospel and evangelize because I'm more concerned about my own comfort and I'm not trusting the sufficiency of Christ. I can't find freedom from addiction without loving God. If you're addicted, if you're struggling, if you're wrestling, this message is not intended to bring you shame. I want to see you free in Christ because Christ has already paid for your freedom. I just want you to see that Jesus is more valuable than whatever it is you're addicted to. Don't shout me down when I'm preaching good this morning, church. But whatever you're addicted to, Jesus is better. Whatever you're valuing above Jesus, you've got misplaced priorities. Jesus is better. 
And the reason I'm preaching to you today is to try to convince you that Jesus is better by showing you in his word how he's better. And the Holy Spirit gripping your heart to show you Jesus is better. And your eyes being open to see that Jesus is better. And to show you the gospel and remind you of the gospel and the great price Christ paid so you'll see Jesus is better. But until we believe that being disconnected from God is truly our greatest need to be brought into his family and made alive again, we won't see the value in that. Until we're reminded of the gospel, we won't see the value in that. When your heart has truly been gripped by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you cannot be the same. It is not possible. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect after you put your faith and trust in Christ, but it does mean now I'm pursuing something different. My affections are on something different than they were before. I don't want to just get up in front of a group of people and accept my award and say, I want to thank God but my life doesn't match up. I don't want to just say God is good and I know how to do it all the time, all the time. God is good, all of our little church things we do. Answers Jesus and the Bible to all the questions on the quiz and I somehow disillusion myself and to believe that I actually do love God when my affections are stirred towards other things. I want us to grow in loving God, but the only way I'm going to grow in loving God is, is to trust in Christ more and to know Christ and to have my heart, my affection stirred by the gospel because that's the gate. That's the way. It's Jesus. It's Christ alone. There is no other way. Amen, church? Let's go back to 1 John. Let's read chapter 4. Let's look at verse 7, and let's read a good portion of text here talking about the love of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but Rather, that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, and if we love one another, then God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He's in us because He's given us of His Spirit. We have seen and we testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Stop right there. He's saying that if we're still living in fear, we're still trying to earn it. We're still trying to be good enough in God's eyes, and we've missed it. We're still trying to make God like us by what we do, and that's burdensome when you try to do all the right things, when you try to get everything right within your own strength, and you try to be this perfect, disciplined person 
who avoids anything that you think would be wrong for a Christian to do, and you try to do it all in your strength. And you try to do it with the motive of saying, look, God, look what I did. When you do it with the motive and the heart of saying, look, God, look at how good of a Christian I am. Look at how much I serve. Look at how much I, I volunteer. Look at how much money I gave. Oh, they just sent out the, the tax statements, you know. Um, Lord, wow, look at all the money I gave. Wow, I didn't even know I gave so much money. I'm such a good Christian. Look at, look at how, how long I prayed today. Look at how I was going to, you know, uh, tell that guy what I really thought, but I instead gave him grace and mercy. And look at, look at how, and when I'm trusting in all those things, I'm missing the mark. Now, all those things are good. That's the thing. There's a, there's a thin line here because they're good. We, these things should be flowing out of us. These good things should be coming out of us, but not to say, look at me. Amen? Even in our hearts, because God sees through all the stuff that we can fool one another with. God knows our motive. And he's saying, if you're still living out of fear, you're still not understanding the gospel because fear has to do with punishment. And Jesus, he took the punishment. So verse 20 or verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments, look at this, are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? John writes and says, this is not burdensome. So if you're being burdened down by Christianity, you're, you're not loving God well. Because you're being burdened by the fact that you're trying to get it all right. No, there is freedom in Christ. There is joy in being a Christian. There is joy in following Jesus. Overwhelming joy, unspeakable and full of glory. There is a peace that passes all understanding that guards our heart and our minds through Christ. And I should be renewed. Now, it doesn't mean everything's going to go peachy and always go my way. Actually, Jesus said things aren't going to go that well for you and it's going to be my fault. The world's not going to be a big fan of you because the world hated me first and I'm this stumbling block of offense and if you follow me and serve me, then they're not going to think too highly of you either, but still love them in spite of it. Pray for them even when they despitefully use you, even when they want to hurt you, even when they want to badmouth you, even when they don't like you, even when they want to make life more difficult for you. Love them, forgive them, and show them the love of Christ, even if it costs you your life. And that's what Jesus said. I, no one takes my life from me. I, I lay it down willingly. No greater love has anyone than he would be willing to lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus said. Jesus told us to go wash each other's feet. Jesus told us how we we're to treat and engage and interact with one another, especially those who are of the household of faith, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's what this means. 
This means that before I knew Christ, before I really loved God, and before I really was growing in the love of God, I used to think if someone does me wrong, well, I'm going to do you wrong. I used to think that if someone hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. Someone offends me, well, I'm severing ties with you because I don't like being around people who offend me, and I'm just going to sit on it, get bitter over it, and I'm just going to hang on to it for years and years and years, and I'm just going to stay away from you and tell everyone how much of a jerk you are and gossip about you and, you know, just uh, do everything I can to see you fail or be caused harm. That's how I used to think, and guess what? I wouldn't have been outside of the normal pattern of treating other people who had done me wrong that way. That's how those who don't know Jesus treat other people. But when I love God and I've come to saving faith by loving Christ, something changes in me. It's different now. Now all of a sudden someone offends me and I'm able to go to them in love and try to work it out. And even if it doesn't, I'm still going to love them. I'm going to do my best to extend these branches of grace to them. Even if they continually reject me, I'm still looking for ways to pray for them and Love them in spite of the way that the, I'm going to actually lift them up before the Lord in prayer and pray God blesses them, opens their eyes, saves them, whatever the case may be. Uh, the things that someone may do that would have used to cause me to go down this spiral, I'm going to actually shut my mouth instead of gossip about them because something's different in me. I, Jesus is on the inside now and he's changed me and I'm loving God more and I'm more concerned about pleasing God than I am telling other people how I was wrong. You see, something has changed and I'm not okay with this pattern of sin anymore. And even if I do get caught up in the gossip, I, I'm not okay with it. I repent of it quickly because I realize it was ugly and it didn't please God. And that's not who I am anymore because I've had an identity shift and I'm loving people. Why? Because God loved me first. When I got all my stuff together? No, when I was a hot mess. That's when God loved me. When I was an enemy of God, when I had no right to stand before him, he he, he made a way for me to be able to stand before him. And, and, and it makes me want to just get down and, and say, Lord, here I am, your humble servant. And, and God, I can't believe I, I have even the opportunity to talk to you. And he says, talk to me more like you would a father because I want to talk to you more like a son or a daughter because I've adopted you. You're now my child. Even where in Romans chapter 5 it says we can cry out to him with this attitude of a child to a father, this Abba father or a daddy God, where I can speak to him in, a, in terms of intimacy. I still, I still walk in the fear of the Lord. I'm still humbled. I'm still awe. I'm still overwhelmed, but I'm also close because of what he's done. I, I could never have put myself in that type of position. No, but Jesus did through his sacrifice. And that type of love that was shown to, to me, that I can now have that type of access to talk to God as a son or as a daughter, church, should that not be something that causes me to be full of joy, that should overflow and flow into my relationships that I have with others, that should overflow and translate into compassion towards those who don't know Jesus. You see, this isn't something we have to try harder at. If I grow in loving God, I'm naturally going to grow in loving other people, those within the household of faith and those who are outside of the household of faith, and, and to show them the truth and the love of Christ. It's going to come out of me, but it starts with me loving God and recognizing my greatest need and remembering my greatest need. You will struggle at times as a Christian, but if you're a Christian, you can't be the same. Listen to me this morning. The love of God expressed through the cross work of Jesus Christ will crush you. 
The cross of Jesus Christ will crush you if you truly have your eyes open and your heart stirred and you see your greatest need. The cross will crush you under its weight. But then here's what the love of God does. First it crushes you and then it rebuilds you and makes you new. Think and dwell on Christ until your heart is stirred to a new sense of worship, devotion, and love for God. This is your bottom line this week. Think and dwell on Christ until your heart is stirred to a new sense of worship, devotion, and love for God. This is about as practical and pragmatic as I'm going to get. If you are struggling with having your affection set on other things, I would submit to you today that perhaps those things have your affections because you've been thinking and dwelling on them more than you have the greatest story ever told. Perhaps you've been thinking about other needs that you've identified in your life and you've thought on them so much that they've consumed your world and, and you've drifted from thinking and dwelling on the gospel. Perhaps you've been out of the scripture and you haven't been in the word of God. I'm encouraging you, I'm exhorting you, think and dwell on Christ. Think and dwell on who God is, the character and the nature of God. And to do that, you have to be in his word. Even if you just think and dwell on one word or one scripture, even if it's what we read earlier in Romans 5, 7 and 8, where he talked about dying for us while we were yet sinners. Whatever it is, stir yourself up. Stir your affections because the enemy wants to get you distracted. And maybe you came in here today distracted. Maybe you clicked on the website or started watching through Facebook and you're distracted. Maybe you're out sitting in the commons area today and you are distracted. You gotta have that disruption in the distraction and you gotta say, no more. I, I, I want my heart, my affections all stirred towards Jesus first and foremost more than anything else. He is greater. He is all sufficient. He's worth it. Amen? And I know that we say amen, and I know that I even say that as a, as a preacher of the word because I know it's right, but I fail at this, and you fail at this. We all fail at this. And this isn't an attempt to bring you a bunch of shame and put a bunch of guilt on you because this is not burdensome, nor should it be but it should stir in us an attitude of repentance and perhaps even an attitude of godly sorrow because as scripture says, godly sorrow works repentance. Perhaps there is an element of that this morning that needs to happen in your life. Perhaps there's an element where God is saying, hey, you've gotten comfortable, you've gotten complacent. I'm, I'm, I'm shaking you a little bit today. I'm chastising you in my love and I'm, and I'm trying to bring you back to a place where your affections are stirred because your priorities are all out of whack the things you're excited about, the things you're passionate about, the things that you think and dwell on all the time are out of line because there's no one greater than Jesus. And as we think and dwell on the gospel and as we're reminded of our greatest need and as we believe and trust that Jesus is sufficient to meet our greatest need, oh, it should cause me to repent. It should cause me to turn all of my affections to where I can die to self, not because I'm so great, not because I had the will to die to myself, but because the cross has become so overwhelming to me, the love of God has become so overwhelming to me that how could I not die to myself? What other option is there? 
in light of the cross, in light of the gospel. What other option? There is no other alternative. It has become that great. It has become that overwhelming. The love of God poured out on me, and then it translates to other people. So it's not Derek pouring his love out on other people because nobody wants that. Derek's not that great anyways. And the world doesn't need a better version of Derek. Maybe some people do, but not the, you know, not the whole world. What the world needs is the love of God. Amen? And I can't give something I don't have. I don't want to be a person who says, I love God. I love God. Oh, I love God. And I know how to answer all the questions right. And I can show you all the things I've done. But my heart's somewhere else. I don't want to be the church kid who grew up in church and learning all the right things. Because I did. I was. I am. I'm the church kid that grew up knowing and saying and doing all the right things. But have I really experienced joy in serving God? Is serving God a joy or a chore? Am I humbled and am I in awe of who he is and what he's done? Have I thought and dwelled on the cross? Has my heart been stirred And has it created a new sense of worship, a new sense of devotion, a new sense of love and awe? Or do I keep going back to the same old vomit just like a dog returns to his vomit? Same old, same old. Or do I really see the treasure in the field? Do I really see the value of Jesus that is so far beyond anything else? that this world could offer. What a cheap imitation this world has to distract the Christian television, entertainment, pursuing bigger and better retirement, vacations, all these things that we've that have become idols that could, could have been so good and still can be, but when in our hearts we elevate them above God and we think we need these things and we don't pursue needing Jesus, have we, have we seen, have we heard, have we experienced the love of God? Or do we just know all the cute things to say in church and then we just leave here and just go back to it? My idea of loving God and loving people, it can't revolve around me. Because if it does, it's not gonna last very long because my affections change. I love the Bucks, I love Harley Davidson's, I love pizza, I love, you know, vacationing. I love, 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 love. Do I love God? really do it. The only way I know to love God is to grow in loving Jesus and, and, and I want to know him more and more and I want to share in his sufferings and I want to love and know him more and, and, and abide in his word. I want to know and love him more and serve others as he has served and set the pattern of serving by washing the feet of his disciples and then turning and say, what I've done to you, go and do to one another. I want to continue to know him more so that I cherish and treasure him more and more so that I can love God and I can love others. So think and dwell on Christ until your heart is stirred. Can we do that just for the next few moments? Maybe today is the day of your salvation.
maybe you've been going through the motions. Maybe today's the day you actually become born again. You become a Christian. Maybe you thought you knew God. Maybe you thought you'd done a lot of good things and you're kind of taking account of all the things you've done to try to convince yourself. I don't want you to be shamed today because there's no condemnation. But there is a heart examination. And if something is stirring in you, if you're wrestling with something right now, I believe that that's the Holy Spirit of God trying to draw you to a place where you're actually going to meet Jesus today. Where you actually can know Him, not just know about Him, where you can actually know Him. What do I need to do, Pastor? You need to respond. You need to acknowledge what the Holy Spirit's doing in you today. Whether you're in your home, in your office, driving down the road, maybe you need to pull over and just cry in the presence of God and say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I recognize how precious you are. I recognize the weight of your sacrifice more than I've ever seen it before. I mean, I knew Jesus died on the cross for me, and I've heard that, but it's becoming so real to me in this moment. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is so gracious that this was a day of providence for you, that he opened your eyes so you could see your need to where you had never seen it before. Perhaps today is the day. Maybe for those of us who say, I've had that experience, maybe we've gotten lazy. Maybe we've gotten a little cold. Our fire for God has kind of dwindled because in the place of pursuing knowing God more and loving Him more, perhaps in the place of that, we've begun to love other things more. Or we've trusted in other things for sufficiency because can I tell you today, if you are addicted to something, Jesus wants you free. He's already paid for your freedom. There's freedom in Christ. Amen? Freedom from your past. Freedom from others' opinions. Freedom from the guilt and the shame. Freedom from the chains of bondage. From that alcohol. From those uh, drugs that you're abusing or even if they're over-the-counter prescription medications you're abusing, whatever the case may be, those images that you're looking at and lusting after, there's freedom from that. You're not a slave to that sin anymore if you are indeed in Christ. You just need to love God more than you love that stuff or the more that you pursue Him. There's no one greater. Christ isn't lacking anything, and I pray He shows that to you today. Lord, let our hearts be humbled today to trust you above all else. No one and nothing is greater than you. You are all sufficient and you know every person who is hearing this message today and you know where they're at and you know what they're battling and you know the thoughts in their head and in the intentions of their heart. And I pray, Father, that for their good and for your glory, that you do whatever necessary to bring them to saving faith in Jesus. And that for their good and your glory, you do whatever it takes to stir up a fresh fire and a fresh passion that, that goes beyond emotions, that goes beyond feelings and experiences, but that it causes radical change from the deepest place. 
Do what only you can do. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Before you go, number 6 and 24. Amen.